going to put my Ricola dual actions right here. I've had enough of these lately that I, th I think I'm going to go uh, find an, a big Alpen horn somewhere and you know start maybe call in the sheep in Switzerland or something. We'll, uh, <coughs> it does give me a nice baritone though. I rather like this. This is you know so. We'll see. We'll see if it holds up. My wife was impressed that I didn't start coughing during the sermon today, but um, it's fun. I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be here with all of you. I'm delighted for the weather. I'm thankful we had a baptism today at 4. It was a really precious event. It, there's such joy there. Uh, uh, Tammy gave me permission to tell you this is a decision that she made, and it's a wonderful thing to see when somebody makes that decision and there's no regrets. It's, they know that it's a decision that they made uh, to follow Jesus. And I was just so thankful to be a part of that today. And thank you for all your encouragement. So the series that we're on is uh, called Basics. And it's the basic things that every Christian should know. And um, tonight we're going to talk about the incarnation. And that's why I'm calling this... Uh, episode in the flesh. The incarnation is a, uh, that's, that's a, that's a $10 word right there. And it means in the flesh. You know, think about the way we use that phrase that when we say we uh, met somebody and they'll say, did you really talk to them? I spoke to them in the flesh. That means you were right there in your presence. That means it was real. It was tangible. That's what incarnation has to do with, has to do with the reality of God face to face, this close to us. Um, if you think of uh, the moment where Thomas wonders if he's really seeing Christ risen, and who can blame him for wondering? I mean, that, that doesn't happen, one back from the dead, but he asked to put his hand in the hand of Jesus. He wants to know that's in the flesh, that's incarnation. And incarnation becomes a $10 word that gets very um, uh, lofty and can seem doctrinal or theological or very out of reach. And it doesn't have to be. In fact, it, it becomes something so basic and so um, not only basic, but it's also essential and foundational. I want to show you that as well in Scripture tonight. But it becomes the stuff of song. It becomes the stuff of poetry for the first generation of Christians. And so we're going to begin in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, um, and by the way, remember that every, every letter that Paul writes, it's, um, it's to address real people with real situations and real, real problems, real questions, real needs. Uh, Paul doesn't decide that there's a market in Christian writing and decides that it's a good idea to write these letters. He's, he's corresponding. He's talking to people who need to hear this. So the Philippian church needs to remember... Uh, what it's like to have the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, he is encouraging that community of Christians to, um, uh, to have humility, to value others, to think about others. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, 
being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this description of who Jesus was and what the story of Jesus is, you see the gospel being told here in just a very compact way, in just a few lines. And this beginning in, in verse 6, who being in very nature God. Um, this leads us to believe that what we have here is something that Paul may not have necessarily composed on his own, but it might have been a statement or a, a, a poem or even a hymn that would have been familiar to the people. And just like uh, we sing songs sometimes and it recalls things to us because there are familiar phrases there and we make a point out of it, something that we've been saying all along. Paul may be bringing this to their attention and saying, listen, don't we know this, that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? And they would, they would know these words. And Paul is putting them in this context to say, this is what we say about Christ. And you can think, okay, wait, he's getting into lofty, deep theology or doctrine. He is, but for a very practical reason. Because he says, if you look at the example of Jesus, Jesus starts out, he's one with God. Um, as the scripture says, being in very nature God. But he doesn't consider that something to be seized or taken advantage of or held on to. But he can empty himself. He can let go of it out of humility and out of a desire to please God and out of a desire to see to our best interest. And he can lower himself and take the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now that's a statement of what Christians, what Paul understood about Christ. That Christ is the one who is in very nature God but takes on human likeness. Now again, this is one of those basic items that you know, when we mention it, when we bring it up, we say, oh, well, yes, of course, of course, we, 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 we've heard this. But I'm telling you, this becomes extremely important for so many reasons. Not just to affirm that fact, but you can see here the way Paul is using it, he wants it to change behavior. That if you know this about Christ, it's not just a fact to recognize, it's something that causes us to humble ourselves, to behave in a certain way, to see to the interests of others. I'll tell you, this incarnation thing is, is pretty sound and it's pretty, it's pretty healthy and pretty good for us. Um, so keep that in mind. Now, it says, taking the very nature of servant, being made in human likeness. That means that his form, his appearance is human. There were some ideas kicking around in the first few centuries of Christianity, and I, I believe they still exist today, that Jesus looks human, but it's really kind of a disguise. And there's a lot of myths and a lot of um, uh, ideas about 
the ancient gods that they would appear human, but they're really not. Uh, they, it's kind of a trick. It's sort of an illusion. And some of that thinking probably fed into um, some of the thinking in the early centuries. And, and, you know, and it kind of resonates with us today, too, because people, sometimes we want to make Christ more mystical and heavenly and otherworldly than, uh, than, than he would appear in a very normal, ordinary, natural way. Sometimes there's a tendency to make him too human and to disregard what's divine about him. And it's those tendencies gravitating towards one or the other that always leads us into some sort of uh, troublesome idea. And, and here's the thing. It's not just a problem then for an idea. It starts to affect the way we live, the way that we behave, the way that we operate as believers. If you've got a Christ that is too divine then we can never relate to him. If we've got a Christ that's too human, then how can he save? And, and we, we have to embrace both of these, and this is where understanding the incarnation becomes so important. And it's in Scripture. We've looked at Philippians. Now, just, just so we know that we're not talking about some sort of illusion of humanity, that Jesus is not the Spirit of God operating a... Um, uh, you know, a human form that, that is just sort of a host for, for some sort of spiritual being. It's not, a, it's not a form of spiritual possession. He is a man, and yet he is also the Son of God. Take a look at Hebrews 10. Uh, Hebrews 10 if there's a, any question that Human likeness uh, is, is just an illusion and not reality. Hebrews 10 will clarify this. Uh, when Christ came into the world, this is uh, 10 verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said... Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It's a... It's a it's very much a reality. This, I think, is important for us to recognize in that our faith is not merely conceptual. It's not something that we are left to just think about. Our faith has to do with the bodies that we inhabit, with the tangible, material world that we live in. And, and to try to pull apart the spiritual and the material is to do something that, that Scripture would never do. Um, the, the idea of taking apart the, the spiritual and the uh, material is, is what they call that in philosophy is dualism, that there are two sides of things. Now, that's the $20 explanation. If you want the 20 cent explanation, I want you to think of an egg, okay? Um, when we 
when we take an egg and we cook it, we use the insides. Now, some of you are saying, oh, no, there's a use for the shells. Uh-huh, there is, yeah. And you can tell me all of your clever uses for eggshells. I will point out the fact that you have to come up with clever uses for the eggshells to tell you that eggshells are pretty much useless, okay? Because we all know what to do with the inside of the egg, but everybody has to find something clever to do with the eggshell. You put it in your coffee grounds and it makes your coffee taste better. If your coffee tastes that bad, maybe you need to quit putting eggshells in it. That's all I'm saying. And, and see, th that dualism, that there's, there's an in inner person, there's something inside of us, and this meat body that we live in is just a shell. But don't worry about it because it's what's inside that really counts, and all of this we're just going to crack and throw away. And, you know, maybe somebody will use it on their coffee grinds to make their coffee taste better. I don't know. That's not biblical. That's dualist. Scripture never makes a decision between the two, that it's all bound up together, okay? It has the idea of, uh, it, it's embodied in the idea of Jesus who says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And no one bothers to ask Jesus when I wait, which one of those is most important? That's not the right question. They're all important. They all matter. Now, I gave you the 20-cent explanation of an egg. Let me give you a 20-cent explanation on this uh, alternate idea. I would say it's like a cake, you know, or a cookie if you want. You're going to make a cake. You're going to make cookies. What are you going to put into it? Well, you're going to take some eggs, some sugar, flour, water. You're going to mix it all up. You're going to put whatever other flavorings. And, you know, there's probably things I'm leaving out. That's okay. I don't make cakes. And, uh, you know, baking soda, whatever else you need. You put it all in there. You stir it all up. Now, here's the important part. You stir it all up. You put it in the oven. You pull it out. You've got a cake. Now, take the milk out of that cake. You can't. Or you could probably destroy the cake in the process. You could dehydrate the thing and take all the water out. But it would no longer be a cake. That's what we are. We are body and we are spirit. We are mind. We are all of that. Bound up in such a way that it makes us who we are. And, and in the resurrection, and, and this will be another uh, talk that we'll do. But in the resurrection... We're told, uh, Paul mentions this in Corinthians, that we will have bodies of some sort. That we are not going to be disembodied spirits. That, that that's incomplete. And Jesus represents that, that after his resurrection, he has a body. And it bears the scars of his former life. And yet, his body's not exactly the same as it was before. The fact that Jesus Christ, before the crucifixion, before his resurrection, the fact that he comes to us as God in the flesh, it matters. And it says that, that what we go through matters. That God has lived the kind of existence that you and I are living. So when, when we talk about our aches and pains, God understands. He understands that. When we talk about the, uh, the struggles and the limitations of being in the flesh, God understands that now through Jesus. And this passage in Hebrews points out that, that everything that happened on the cross, it happened. This isn't just some myth or some tale. And, and, and by the way, the things that happen are not just things that happen in some faraway cosmic dimension, but they happened here on earth. 
here where you and I live, it happened in history. Jesus Christ had a body. It was real. It took, it, he went through crucifixion, which was a very real thing that they did in the first century that had to do with the Roman Empire, that had to do with punishment, that had to do with shame. That's one of the wonderful and, and unique things about our faith is that it is rooted in real events. Okay, let's take a look at another verse. 1 John 4. Uh, you, you go uh, towards the end of the Bible from Hebrews. Uh, you got to go through James, 1 2 Peter, 1 John. You get to 1 John. And in 1 John 4, um, he's talking about spirits. Uh, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And we tend to think of a spirit as something intangible. Something invisible, like breath, uh, like air. It's something that we, you know, you could say there's something tangible there, but again, it's, you can't grasp it. It's, it's, it's immaterial in some sense. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. All right. If you're looking for an identifier for Spirit of God, here it is. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Well, there you go. So what we're saying here is that he says that there's teachers. They, they, they come. They, they're, they're going to be preaching. Their preaching is going to have a certain spirit to it. The things that they say are going to have spirits. The messages that are going to come from that. All of that that is wrapped up in what we would call the spiritual. He said, if the implication of that is that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that Jesus, the human body, is one thing, and Jesus, the spiritual Son of God, is something else, or any, any tampering of that at all that tears that apart, he says, that does not come from God. That is not approved of by God. That's how critical this idea of the incarnation is. And yet, it's actually that simple. Okay, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He's real. And he's God. And Jesus of Nazareth. Furthermore, to deny that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, to say he's just a man, he's just a teacher, that's not a spirit of God. To say that he was really divine and that he really didn't die and it was all an illusion, that's not the spirit of God. You have to embrace all of it. And it's not hard. Uh, it's not anything that should cause us a lot of great concern. In fact, John intends this word to comfort those that he calls his little children. Uh, he's not going to lay on them some sort of uh, graduate-level theology class to say, now listen, it's really hard to tell what the Spirit of God is, and you've got to be qualified, and you can run tests, and even then, it may not work. He's not going to say that to them. He wants them to be comforted. It's, the, it's their enemies who are telling them stuff like that, who are telling them that this is all so complex and this is all so hard to understand. He says, it's real simple, my little children. Any spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that's not a godly spirit. There you go. It's, it's so profound, and yet at the same time, it's so simple. 
Again, this indicates to us just how much this matters. Now, let's back up a little bit to 1 Timothy 3.16. You know, if you're ever looking for a reason to do your Bible reading and you want something that will encourage you to keep going, just sometime read all of the 3.16s of the Bible. Uh, John 3.16 is not the only 3.16. And uh, this is a good 3.16. Paul's talking to Timothy. He's writing a letter to Timothy. And he's, he's, just, he's, he's talking about stuff that you would write about in a letter. I want to see you soon. I hope to come visit you. Uh, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, once again, let me just pause right there and point out. Do you see Paul's intent in writing to Timothy? It's not to lay on Timothy some sort of um, intense, deep, secret knowledge or wisdom. He says, Timothy, I want you to know this stuff because this is the stuff that helps God's people live the way they're supposed to. It's that practical. The incarnation, Jesus in the flesh, is not some lofty idea. It has to do with everyday living. He says uh, in verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery, oh, mysteries are complex, aren't they? Mysteries are kind of unknown. They're, they're, They're mysterious, yeah. But it's the mystery from which true godliness springs. He says that's what's so fantastic about this. It is mysterious, and yet what you get out of it is just, you get street-level righteousness out of it is what he says. Everyday, daily grind righteousness. And then he says this, and this may also be a familiar hymn. It could be. It starts out with that same word. Who being, uh, you know, the one who is. He appeared, or the one who appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the word, and was taken up in glory. Now, in English, that didn't really hit you. It's very poetic. I mean, the, the um, you know, it, there, there's, not a, there's not a real good uh, rhythm to that. But in Greek, it does. It has a rhythm. It starts out with that word for the one who, just like in Philippians. And then uh, it'll have the verb and in the flesh. And then the verb in the spirit. And then seen by angels. And then uh, uh, among the nations and in the world and in glory. And there's always that phrasing, in this, in that, in this. And it clicks along so nicely that it makes you think, wow, there's something there that Paul and Timothy know, like lyrics to a familiar song or or a familiar poem or a saying. Uh, And it's even got some scriptural backing to it as well. But here is the idea that Jesus is the one who appeared in the flesh. Why would he mention that? Because that appearance of the righteous one in the flesh means that God, again, is not far off and distant in some idea of righteousness. He's right here with us. If we were to go back to 1 John, John starts out his letter in 1 John 1, and he says, that which we have seen, that which we have beheld, that which we grasped, it's like God was right there. We witnessed it. He appeared to us. Um, 
It's become so vitally important. Okay. Now, the most familiar, but we're saving it for last because I think it's important to hear these earlier expressions of, of how important the church thought it was to, to proclaim and to identify that Jesus is God who came in the flesh, who appeared to us in the flesh. He was that close to us. Before we jump to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John comes later. It comes after a lot of these scriptures that we have read. And I think John is, is, is dealing with the fact that some people, are that they were not around when Jesus appeared in the flesh. You have generations later who can only hear about this, like, like us. We didn't see him. But he says, the witnesses who did testify to you that this is true, and now we rely on their witness and yet he says there's still a way that we can experience him, and this is still just as important, even if we didn't see it firsthand. So you take a look at John in that opening um, chapter of John, which, by the way, in the other Gospels, John is probably the latest Gospel written. Uh, there's some debate over who came first, Matthew or Mark. Luke probably came after those because he seems to, he seems to have read parts of Matthew and Mark, if not the whole thing. But John is probably the last. Ah, there's probably some theories that say John's earlier. At the end of the day, whatever. But I really do think, personally, that John comes later. And it makes sense. Because here's John. Remember, he's the one that sticks around the longest. He's the one that uh, is, is there for a long time. And there's even that, there's even that um, statement about it at the end of the gospel where they're saying, Hey, wait, you know, uh, this is my paraphrase. Jesus, what are you going to do? You know, he's going to stick around until the end. And Jesus says, why do you worry about what I'm going to do with him? You worry about what I'm going to do with you. And uh, that's, that's quite a paraphrase, I know. But, the, the, but here's, here's, here's John, and if he is that last link to Jesus in the flesh, then can't you imagine that he's wanting them to know how important that is? Um, so Matthew and, and Luke... Uh, Mark picks up his gospel with John the Baptist. We start off with John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke have stories about the birth of Jesus. And the birth of Jesus has to do with God in the flesh. And that's usually about the only time that this comes up in our thinking and our practice is around you know, Christmas time or when we think about the birth of Jesus. But the birth, the birth stories are really, uh, like in Matthew, it's really about God being with us. And in Luke, it's about the proclamation that a Savior has been born. We have a king. Uh, it's good news. The incarnation is there. But the heavy emphasis is on these other things. In John's gospel, the emphasis is on Jesus coming in the flesh. So we start out with these words, very familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now the next verse is going to break, and it's going to be a, uh, a shift over to John the Baptist. But when we get back to verse 14... We go back to the word, the word, what word? That word that we talked about up there in the first five verses. 
the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What I love about John 1.14 is not only does the Word become flesh, it's not just a concept, it's not just something to note. Okay, God took on human form. As if that's some sort of process that we can describe or understand or analyze. He, you know, or if we think that God became flesh, why? Eh, so that we could have a sacrifice. We need a real sacrifice. And that's really why it had to all happen. So it's just sort of a necessity. And John, he emphasizes why, what happened when the word become, became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. It means he lived with us. It means he showed up on our street is what it means. It means he, he moved in next door to us. Who did? The word. The word that was with God in the beginning. And John is writing this and he's telling anyone who will listen, he's saying, hey, wait, wait, you're talking about the word that was with God, the word that was with God in the beginning Everything was made through him, uh, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And you're saying that you had a fish supper with him. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I love it because at the end of John's gospel, some of my, there's Jesus risen. He's out there cooking fish. Come on in. Come on in, guys. I've got breakfast ready for you. The word dwelt, he made his dwelling place with us. He, he, he put up, you know, he, he, he put down roots with us is what he's saying. Um, I think the actual expression there is he, uh, he put up his tent. That meant that he's, you know, that's, that's kind of a, uh, imagine like an old Bedouin, you know, Arabic saying that he's, he's dwelling next to us. He's living alongside of us. God wants to dwell with us. Now, the beginning of John reminds you, of, of what? Genesis, doesn't it? In the beginning was the word. That's not an accident. And I think there's a connection between John 1.14 and Genesis 3.8. In Genesis 3.8, um, if you don't catch this about the incarnation, this verse may not be is heartbreaking to us, as we often think. In Genesis 3.8, and this is after uh, the man and the woman have listened to the serpent and they've done what they're not supposed to do. And then here's God. Then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The first response of God to sin in his good creation is not anger. He doesn't rush in and start tearing up trees and knocking down mountains and say, I told you not to touch that tree. It's a friend, it's a creator, it's a father who comes in and wants to be with his, his creation, his children, the man and the woman. And he says, 
where are you? And they're hiding from him in shame. That's heartbreaking. God wants to walk with us in the garden. And that could not happen on that day because of sin. So when we see God in the flesh in Jesus, he is doing what he has to do so that you and I can have a walk in the garden with him. Now, next week, we're going to connect this to another basic idea, is that in Jesus, what God is doing is he's making himself relatable to us. He's making himself known. He is revealing himself um, in the flesh. And we'll, we'll look at why that's important. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your overwhelming love and your desire to make yourself known to us, that you will go to any lengths, that nothing separates us from your love. And Father, I pray if we can just get a small glimpse of that, a small understanding of that, can we understand how much that means to you? That Jesus Christ did not consider equality with you, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and he became human and he became obedient to you, even to the point that he suffered a shameful death on a cross. But Father, you will not let that be the last word. That you're going to have the last word and the last word is reconciliation. Father, help us to stop being so rebellious that we want to kick and scream against going to to be with you and visit with you and be close to you as you desire. I pray that you'll teach us to be obedient even as Christ was. And Father, I pray that you'd bless us in this, in the study of your word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion's been prepared in room 100. If you need to partake of communion, you can go there now as we stand and sing, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.